This is true. So take your Bible, please, to Exodus chapter 3. We'll continue worshiping together, and we'll worship in the Word. Exodus chapter 3. And I'd invite you, in Exodus chapter 3, to look with me at verse 13. I'll read from 13 to the end of the chapter to give us an understanding of what we're studying this morning. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What's his name? What should I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and Gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you, what's been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. They will listen to your voice. You and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. When you go, you should not go empty. Each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, So you shall plunder the Egyptians. You can be seated and children who are going off to children's church, you can be dismissed. Here in Exodus chapter 3, we're in this two-part story. And the story can be broken up into two sections. Moses asking two questions. Question number one, who am I? And then question number two, Who are you? Those are two important questions. They're questions that you should be asking right now. Who am I? And who are you, God? The answer to that is life-giving. It's life-changing. When Peter got it right, Christ said, you didn't figure that out on your own. God taught you that. Who are you? Who do people say the Christ is? Moses asks, who are you, God? What is your name? 
two imperative questions for us right now. The title for this sermon is simply, I Am. You remember the first part of the chapter, the title was, Who Am I? And today, the answer that God gives Moses, I Am. This text, like the rest of Exodus, like its place in the Pentateuch, is not a narrative about a man named Moses. It is not. Maybe today, as clearly as any place in Exodus, that's obvious. This is not about how Moses asks God questions. This is not about how Moses responds to God's answers. This text, Exodus, the Pentateuch, the scriptures are about God. Exodus 3, 13 through 22, where we're going to be today, can be studied in four scenes. They are four expressions of God's revelation. I'll only have time today for two of them. I was going to do all four points. But but you pray for me, and the Spirit answered your prayer and said, keep it shorter. So it will be a little shorter. There are four scenes of God's revelation. The first one is God reveals himself in monotheistic terms. Theism, this is God. Mono is one. When Moses asked the question, what's your name? What's your essence? What's your identity? Who do I say has sent me? God reveals himself in monotheistic terms. Then we'll see that God reveals himself as compassionate and patient. We read that God says, I saw you in the land and I witnessed your affliction. And we read that God is somewhere sitting in the stands observing human history. That is not the weight of God's point. And we'll talk about that in a moment. For next week, Lord willing, God reveals himself in his sovereign might. And then lastly, God reveals himself as a sovereign covenant keeper. So for today, just these first two. When Moses asks, who should I say you are? God reveals himself in monotheistic terms and in compassion and patience. Okay, before we study, let's pray. Lord, your word is rich. It is a two-edged sword. It is illuminating light for our path. It is a hammer. It is a sickle bringing in harvest. It is food for our soul. As Pastor Will mentioned, it never returns empty or void. And so as it is preached, we gladly depend on your promise that your spirit is the teacher, the instructor, who will minister this truth to us in a way that transforms us to the praise and glory of our Father and your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray to you. Amen. Okay, let's start with the first one. Moses has seen in the wilderness a bush burning. And as I mentioned last week, in this arid climate, what caught Moses off guard wasn't the fact that the the, the bush was burning, but that it wasn't burning up. 
So Moses goes over by it. God stops him and says, don't come any closer. This place that you're entering into is holy ground. Because most generically, we can refer to what's going to happen between Moses and the fire coming out of the middle of the bush is a theophany. And he says, take off your shoes. The place you're walking is holy. As Moses approaches, he gets this instruction from God saying, you're going to go and deliver the people out of their bondage. I've seen it. I've been moved with sympathy and compassion and I'm going to take action and I'm going to do it through you. I'll be with you. Go do that. And Moses then asked the question, humbly, who am I? That helped us last week consider that same question for us. This week, Moses asked God the question, who are you? Especially as it relates to when I get back and I tell the elders of the people of Israel, uh, God sent me to tell you he's about to set us free. Moses anticipates that they're going to say, which God? Now, that seems foreign to us in most of the Old Testament relationship between Yahweh and his people, but it's not foreign here in Exodus 3. Where are the Israelite people? Living in a land that is flooded with polytheism. You see the difference? Monotheism. There is one true God. And polytheism. There's a bunch. Which one do you belong to? And so Moses knows that the elders of the people of Israel will first ask, which God? And Moses asks God, the theophany, what is your name? Even if he goes back and says, uh, the God of Abraham sent me. Well, okay, still, what's his name? Is it El Elyon, God Most High? Is it El Shaddai, God Almighty? Is it El Roi, the God who sees? Is it El Bethel, the God of Bethel? What is the name that you want me to relate to them with this message? And we are blessed. In verse 14, the Spirit of God blesses us by giving us the answer. The preserved revelation of of God's proper name. We know very commonly the name Yahweh. You know, the Bible actually says that after Jacob, Jacob's sons, Jacob's descendants didn't use the name Yahweh. It's part of the reason the name had been forgotten. It's part of the reason that God is going to say out of the fire, this is my name. It should be remembered in every generation because it had not been. Here, we read in verse 14, the re-revelation of the name Yahweh in its first-person active form. I am the being one. First person, God says, this is what I go by. It means that Yahweh is the creator, the sustainer of all that exists, and thus Lord over both creation and its events. All that is, all that happens, 
God over everything and apart from anything. We could summarize that when he says, I am, he is saying, everything comes under me. Holy. Totally other than anything else. I am not one made who made the rest, but I am distinct from everything made who made all of it. Who has always been, who self-exists, who reigns and rules. He repeats, I am who I am. Now, isn't it hard for us sometimes to make language jumps, much less cultural jumps? Moses heard this and it resonated. Have you ever heard people say that there's certain communication that comes to you in your heart language? Moses heard this statement, which is accurate grammatical expression of God's otherness, I am, and it resonated sounding a little bit like I cause to be because I cause to be. By authorizing Moses to go to the elders and say, God sent me with a message. Which God? The one who causes to be. The people said, all right, what's the first causer want? You to be free to a land of promise that he covenanted with Abraham. You to be a nation through whom will come the blessing to all nations. This revelation with its power and authority is the fulfillment of what, you remember when the voice, the theophany, God had told Moses when he said, you go, I'll be with you. You remember? And I said, that's not like God saying, hey, he'll be in the room somewhere. That is God putting a recognizable anointing on his servant so that people would hear the, the feeble, the, the stammering words of Moses and go, I think we should listen. Part of that promise is fulfilled in God telling him the name to use. Verse 15. What had just been revealed is now reiterated with connection to the patriarchs. So this is not a new God. This is the true God. This is not, yeah, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, those guys had a God, and now I'm here to say hello. I'm, I'm the new version. It's the same God. Not a new, but the true God. The creator God of their ancestors, Adam and Eve. The righteous God of Noah. The covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who they worshipped. And thus, the God who would keep his promise and deliver his people. This God reveals himself to Moses. He says at the end of verse 15, This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, I want to take maybe the next six, seven minutes, and I want to be really pastoral. Because I want this communication about who 
God is to affect us as we hear him say his name. Here is the area of concern. Uh, I read an account from a pastor who had gone to teach a seminar on the attributes of God. These are the characteristics. What is God like? And he was teaching a seminar to a large group of pastors at a seminary. It was a week-long seminar, and he was teaching to this group of pastors. And as he was explaining the attributes of God, one pastor grew frustrated and raised his hand and said, you know, I'd like to think of God as omniscient, but not meddling. As a God who is just, but not strict or nitpicky. A God who is sovereign, but doesn't manipulate. After he went on with his little spiel, the speaker said, well, thank you very much. We're not here to talk about what you think. We're not here to talk about you. We're here to talk about God. And so let's get back to the Bible. And that illustrates my concern. I don't don't like to think about God in those terms. The I am? Sounds authoritative, domineering, oppressive. Ah, I don't like to think about God that way. The God I like is like this. I am. I cause to be, Moses heard, because I cause to be. And Moses wrestled with doubts, right? Five times God repeats his, pro- his command. Moses, I told you, do this. Five times. And four times Moses goes, I don't feel up to this. But what ultimately compels this humble servant to go to the king of Egypt and say, workforce has got to be set free. The fact that the message came from, I caused to be because I caused to be, so go do it, it's going to be done. And what happens when we, the church, go, oh, he wants it to be, but I'm just not sure he's up to it. Go into all the world, the places where Christians are killed, and make disciples there. I'm with you always. (laughs) What is that going to do? They got weapons. All things are under my feet, the king says. And they say, listen, I love where your heart's at. You seem like you really care about me. But it's your impotence that I'm concerned about. And the God who says... I should never be forgotten, says I cause to be, because I cause it to be. So go and do it. I think that we have a lot of remembering. I think that we have a lot of reminding. Here we are in this moment. People who bear the light of Christ. And we live right now and right here. 
and there is this permeating worldview. You've heard me call it this before. It's moralistic, therapeutic deism. You've heard me say that before. That's everywhere, including the room. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. And I don't mean that you have rebelliously embraced moralistic, therapeutic deism, but I mean we came in here this morning unaware we had a little on us. Moralistic. Be a good human. You seen a shirt that says, be a good human? Be a good human. Moralistic. Come on. Be nice. Therapeutic. If everyone was nice, the world would be a better place. So, I mean, have some morals. Be a good person. Because, after all, there might be a God somewhere, and he might care about how you act. Maybe. That's deism. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. And God speaks out of the fire and answers the question, I cause to be because I cause to be. And that runs countercultural to the place we steward the gospel. But pastors and churchgoers sit in seminars and raise their hand in objection to I cause to be because I cause to be. And they say, mm-hmm. the version of God I like is moralistic, therapeutic, deism. I told you last week, I, I'm blessed always by our Tuesday staff meetings. And they kind of laughed this week. So like, man, you make our staff meetings sound really exciting. And they don't see them that way, which concerns me, but I do. I think it's because I'm gleaning more from the two of them than they're getting from me. And this week, we talk about preaching a lot. It's a very important thing to us. It's really central to what we are convicted God's called us to do. And so we talked about preaching. And the question came up about about certain styles in preaching. So I want you to listen closely. Um, This, again, is this part of the sermon where I'm pastoring. Um, there's There's a pressure to be evangelistic. Preach for response. Preach for conversion. Okay, that's admirable, right? I'm not shunning that. So the more sanctified version of that, like evangelistic preaching, preach for the lost people in the room to become Christians. The the more sanctified version of that is preach Christ from every text. Well, you can see how that's sanctified, right? It's hard to argue against that. And as we were conversing, one of the the guys said, well, what about so-and-so, a pastor whose name I won't use and You all know him and have probably been blessed by his writing and preaching. And one of the guys says, well, what what about him? And I had heard him give a lecture to pastors about, you know, there's this sanctified call for the preachers to preach Christ in every text. And he says this. He said, my concern is that we have sermons that hover over the passage but never land in it. And one of the men said to me in staff meeting, well, 
but that particular pastor preaches God in every sermon. And we all laughed because we agree. He absolutely does. That illustration matters right now because it would be very easy for us to have a healthy appetite to learn about the things God does, like save sinners. But not embrace a healthy healthy appetite for who God is. Because you, you can have a couple of pastors get together at a seminar, and one of them say, well, I have to think this way, and I like to think this way, and I like this, and I, I don't take that, and I, I reject that, but I embrace this. And then they say, but it's okay for us all to be at this seminar because Jesus saves. That's alarming to me. Because I read things like, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Confess and be saved. Confess means to say the same thing he says. And I think in our culture of, forgive me, I don't mean to be insulting, but I think you probably would use this same term about our culture. There's a consumerism. And therefore, there's an appeal to what God does. Because what God does, we can enjoy and consume. But do we have the new life appetite to say I want to know who he is so 1st Timothy 1 turn your Bibles to 1st Timothy 1 this is really just amazing passage you know it's, it's the one you've probably all heard where Paul calls himself the chief of the sin tribe <laughs> he's like the head honcho of the sinning tribe congratulations Paul here's your plaque. You remember that in 1 Timothy 1? Just, would you, would you look with me at verse 15? As we consider God describing to Moses, declaring who he is. We have here in this passage an example of what he does overshadowed by who he is. Let's look at verse 15. 1 Timothy 1, 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. That is beautiful. That is God done stuff. That is, it is awesome. It is magnificent. But Paul says more. He says, that is what God has done in Christ. But I received mercy for this reason. So we start to get a clue that there was a motive, and motive comes from identity. I received mercy for this reason. That as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect forbearance. What's he like? Perfect forbearance or patience. So that it would be an example to all who would believe in him for eternal life. And here is where preaching lands in a text with the close in verse 17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be glory forever and ever. 
Amen. That little paragraph causes us to celebrate what God does. Save sinners of whom we are all foremost. And it tells us what he's like. And therefore why he did. So my concern as we leave this point and move into the next one. Is that we are stewarding the truth in a moment. Where that truth runs across every grain. God is absolute, incomparable, not editable by our imagination, self-existent, completely other than holy. And we steward that truth in a moment of therapeutic deism. And I think, I confess that there are moments where I get some of that shaping my confidence, my confession, my worship. And this text is a blessing from the Spirit to guard us. Jesus says in John eight fifty eight that he also goes by the name I am. There's this text where they're challenging him about his identity. He refers to Abraham. And he says, before Abraham was, comma, I am. M. What comes next? They knew what they they knew what they heard. They heard an echo of Exodus 3. They heard Jesus attributing to himself I am name. And they picked up stones to kill him. Because what they considered him to be doing was blasphemy. This is the name of the Lord. This is the name Jesus also gets. And anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But like I shared with, I had a chance to step in and and fill in a little bit with Zach in the missions class. And I shared with them what we, probably many of you have read in a book. Missions exists in the world because worship does not. And that statement's really important to me. Because if missions exist in the world because people haven't yet confessed their sin, then missions comes up short. Because the Great Commission isn't go into all the world and get those poor people out of hell. The Great Commission is go into all the world and make disciples who observe and adore the one who made them new creation in Christ. And and. It seems like semantics. Missions exist because there are lost people everywhere. And that's, that's okay. But if then the conclusion of mission is to go and make people confess, no, there is a God. Oh, and I'm in trouble. What do I got to do? Well, here's the prayer. Say this. Okay. I'm done here. That could be a subtle misunderstanding but fall woefully short of understanding who God is. God reveals himself as the monotheistic one. Secondly, God reveals himself to Moses, therefore to us, as a God of compassion and patience. So secondly, 
God reveals himself in compassion and patience. Let's look at verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to a land of the Canaanites, Hivites, Perez, uh, uh, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, I got those all out of order, Jebusites, you know the people, land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, let us go three days journey into the wilderness, that we might sacrifice to the Lord our God. God's assurance includes revelation of his divine name. He repeats, speak this to the elders. By the way, this is the first time that the elders of Israel are identified. First time anyone spoke about the elders of Israel. Up to this point, it was pretty clear that the structure of God's people was familial. It was this family and this family and this family. Now all of a sudden, it's very national. It's a people, not families. And it's moving toward that. That was part of the covenant. A people for my name's sake, says the Lord. God assigned Moses to report the theophany back to Israel's leaders so they could share with him in the knowledge of this revelation. Now, just imagine. It's hard for me. It's hard for me to step out of my own experience and even fathom these spread out revelations. Take the whole history of Genesis and stack every page up and then out of the stack, pull out the ones where God has conversation with his people. And you have a pretty short stack. In all that span of time, and here comes one. It's hard for us to relate to that. Because we do it all the time. We're always looking at the revelation of God. We're guilty for not handling the revelation as stewards as often as we should. And here's a group of people that could go hundreds of years without having someone come and say, Hey, God just told me we should. But this is one of them. He says, go and tell the elders, I told you my name, and I told you what I'm going to do, and by the power of my name, you should go and do it. We should not miss the significance. I mentioned it before. He says, I have observed you and what has been done to you. Literally, I have been carefully watching, which means he's not just aware of it, He's stepping into action. The God who causes because he causes is about to do something. I've seen it. And I know that Pharaoh's not going to let it go except by a strong arm. So I'll stretch out my arm over the people of Egypt. The God who saw was compassionate and patient with his people. God announces his awareness of the problem meant 
his interceding in the problem, his intervening in the problem by his mighty hand. Now, verse 16 and 17 repeat a lot of the language that we studied last week in 7 through 9. And then in verse 18 comes the instruction to have conversation with Pharaoh. So go tell the elders, and it seems like they're going to believe you, and then go tell Pharaoh. By the way, what group of people did God not tell Moses to go ahead have conversation with? The rest of the people. I don't know. I'm only speculating. But is it possible that God said, go tell the elders. That'll be easy because they're going to believe you. And then go tell Pharaoh. He's not at first going to believe you, but my strong arm is going to make something happen. So all that stuff's going to go great, Moses. It'll be fine. But what he didn't say is, and you're going to have this stiff-necked people along with you. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, go to the people. He says, go to the elders and go to Pharaoh. And here's what he says to Pharaoh. According to God's instruction, Moses and the elders were to go to Pharaoh and first identify themselves as Hebrews rather than Israelites. That's unique, and we're going to pick up on that as we walk through Exodus. Second, they also are to speak in the name of Yahweh because the demand they're giving came from Yahweh. They are functioning as prophets. Go in, the, in my name, in the name of Yahweh, and tell Pharaoh. I think it's really likely that Pharaoh would have said, never heard of them. I mean, we got like a hundred gods, and you come to me with a new one? But God says to the elders, go in my name. And then lastly, elders and Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let the people leave. Specifically, let us leave three days' journey and go sacrifice to our God. A three days' journey. And we think, that doesn't sound like the Exodus. Like, let's go on a long weekend camping trip and we'll sacrifice to our God. And you read that and think, is he like fibbing? <laughs> saying, let us leave three days and saying, let us go worship our God is kind of like your child who just got their driver's license saying, can I have the keys to the car? Now, we all know that doesn't mean my pockets feel empty and I would like to carry keys around. We know that means I am going to do something with the car and have exclusive possession of the car until I'm done, no one else can use it. And when he says... Let us go three days, a, a number in Scripture that always seems to signify separation. And the reason we're going is because we are going to make it clear we are not like you. We're going to worship the true God. Pharaoh knew exactly what was being asked. They were leaving. Going to offer sacrifice to the Lord God. Our God is a jealous God, and rightly so. It's sometimes challenging for us to think about jealousy in a positive way, because anytime it creeps up in us, it's altogether wrong. But our God is jealous, 
specifically for glory, adoration, praise, worship, consecration. He yearns jealously for the spirit of worship that he made to dwell in us. And he looks at their plight. God sees their pain and in compassion pronounces, I am going to keep the covenant and I am going to bring them out of slavery and bondage. But what, friend, does he bring them out to? Worship. To make an analogy from that, I would repeat, missions exists because the worship of God does not. That's a jealous God calling his people out of a nation of polytheistic, God-ambiguous goo and saying, I am. So come over here and be about worship. There are two imperative questions. Who am I? And who are you, God? You could summarize those questions as gospel-centered questions. Because the first call of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not an invitation to start behaving. The call of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to behold. Beholding God has to include the question, who are you? And an eagerness to hear the answer. And a delight to continue hearing the answer. The name of God is understood as referring to Yahweh being the creator, sustainer of all that exists and all that takes place. God over the present, God over the past, and God over the future. And how do we hear him when he says who he is? Not what he does. What do we hear when he says, I am? The reality is you hear one of two things. You hear one of two things. One is deduced by your flesh. The other is gifted to you by the Spirit. You remember when Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say I am? Well, Elijah, the prophet, that was fleshly. Like, you do, you do amazing things. You must be special. That's fleshly. Like, they watched and said, I would guess you're probably this. And he says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? 
And Peter gets it right. Christ, the Son of the living God. And what does Jesus say back to him? You're so much smarter than the other people. Man, Peter, you're as smart as a whip. Not really. He says, Peter, you got that right today. Flesh and blood didn't help you with that answer. That was revealed to you by the Spirit of God. And so when you hear God say, this is what I'm like, this is who I am, in this room, there are people led by the Spirit who say, the I am, the all in all, the self-existent one who causes to be because he causes to be. And there are still people, apart from God's patient grace, who say, I like to think of him this way. That is not an academic matter. That's an evangelistic matter. There is one name under heaven whereby sinners must be saved. And all those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But if we interpret God through the lens of our pseudo-polytheistic deism, that's an evangelistic matter. So let's pray that way. Father God, thank you for giving us the revelation of yourself. That we would know you. That we would know the power of resurrection. That you have not only come to reveal yourself in name, but in person. In the second person of the Trinity, the incarnate, beloved Son. That we would know, that we would know the name on which we call for salvation. And so, Father, my prayer is that today, right now, as a church family, gladly assembled for worship, that we would know, that we would be knowing you and be heralding you. And do it boldly, with confidence, that the God who causes to be, causes to be, the I am, ruling over this world, its events, its people, to the end of the age. And then in that boldness, that we would joyfully be ambassadors of the name that you've revealed to us in our hearing and in our hearts. We pray to you in praise and adoration. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.